Professor Mostafa Minawi is an associate professor of history at Cornell University and the director of the critical Ottoman and post-Ottoman studies. He is the author of The Ottoman Scramble for Africa, Empire and Diplomacy in the Sahara and the Hijaz. I hope I didn't butcher that completely. As well as the very recent Losing Istanbul, Arab-Ottoman Imperialists and the End of Empire. His short video, The Rise of the Ottoman Empire, he made with TEDET, has almost a million views on YouTube and is just the coolest introduction into the history of the Ottoman Empire. Professor Minavi, welcome to Eurotrash. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here. As I say in nearly every episode of this podcast, my guiding light is my ignorance. But in this case, my extremely limited knowledge, if we can even call it that, uh, of the Ottoman Empire comes with a specific flavor. Um, I'm from the Balkans, and the Balkans have, um, how should we call it, a stormy relationship <laughs> with the Ottoman Empire, as most of it was conquered. Um, so a lot of our folklore, obviously, portrays the Ottomans as the ultimate Disney villains, you know. Um, I remember growing up, reading children's stories about how, you know, we call, they said the Turks are coming and abducting kids and taking them to distant lands. You know, old people would still say, you better behave or the, the Turks are coming and they're going to get you. And unfortunately, the school didn't do much to counter this uh, very binary image. I don't think we even covered the Ottomans in our history class, which is a little bit odd, given the proximity and the history. Now, I understand why these kinds of stories would get kind of burned into, into the collective psyche, because probably there was some generational trauma there, but it doesn't make it easy to understand the history, right? So I was thinking that um, in this conversation, we would kind of go through different images or maybe or cliches that usually ocu occupy our imagery and clear them up a little bit, separating fact from, from fiction as much as we can. Uh, I'm afraid that for you, this conversation might be extremely basic, like I said before. I love doing that. I mean, really, I, I really think of, of, of scholarship as something that is supposed to reach, particularly people that were part of the Ottoman Empire. Because, uh, by the way, what you just described is not limited to the Balkans. It's very much in, in the rest of the Arab world. And I would say, I would argue, even in Anatolia, uh, they are taught Ottoman history, but a limited version and a very kind of uh, Turkocentric version of Ottoman history. So... Uh, the Balkans are not alone. Okay, well, that is already something that is extremely new to me and refreshing to hear. You know, I thought it was just the Balkans. Uh, so here we go. That's a perfect start. We certainly don't have the luxury to cover like six centuries of the Ottoman Empire, but we have to spend like a minute or two with the founder of the Ottoman Empire, Osman I, right? The story goes that Osman dreamt of a tree growing out of him, covering the entire world in its shade, which means he kind of foresaw, the story goes, his future empire. How did he manage to, um, or maybe, first of all, what was the situation in Anatolia during his life in the 13th century? So that is exactly, that's a perfect question. So uh, I love, I love uh, actually talking about uh, what Osman's dream. There's a whole textbook that's written in English. Um, and I think it's been translated to several languages by Cornell Fleischer and um, in which uh, there's a full kind of narration of the dream. And I make one of my students stand up in the middle of the class, usually more than one and narrate it as if they are uh, talking, you know, kind of telling a story of mythology. Usually I get someone who is an orator or someone who does uh, um, uh, reading of religious texts, either in temple or in uh, uh, a church. And, it, and I think that is the context in which it should be taken. It is very much uh, meant to be a mythology that is supposed to, in retrospect, imbue Osman and thus the Ottomans with a religious aura. Uh, a, a sense of a divine, which happens in all empires at that yeah. time, a divine mission uh, that they did not choose, but they were chosen for to encompass uh, the, the world under their shade, which is what the tree is about. But uh, l let's break it down. Osman uh, was the um, uh, emir uh, or the ruler or the bey. Uh, in Turkish, Emir in, in Arabic, both of them were used uh, at the time of something called a Beylik um, or an emirate. If, so if you're thinking of the United Arab Emirates uh, that we understand today as little kind of, uh, uh, that's what was happening during the time of Osman. There was several Beyliks all over Anatolia. 
of uh, similar or equivalent strengths. And uh, uh, what made Osman's Beylik different than others is where we spend a lot of time kind of trying to, in retrospect, look at the little clues as to why were they so successful when others were successful, but definitely not as successful. Uh, they didn't turn their Beylik into an empire and a global empire within 200 years or so. Uh, during that time, uh, the Ottomans were very much doing what the other Beyliks were doing, which is uh, they were trying through uh, alliances as well as through force to to uh, maintain what they have and expand their wealth. It's that basic. Uh, we can put a religious veil over it. We can do whatever we want to do over it. But uh, in reality, when you look at, uh, at what was happening at the time, the Ottomans were not shy to align themselves with, uh, with different Byzantine rulers, uh, whether it is the, the emperor or the pretenders to the throne, as well as others. And also they were not shy to use the help of mercenaries that are both Christian and, non, uh, and Muslim as well. Sometimes when that worked for them and when it and they were not shy about attacking other Muslim emirates in, in Anatolia along the side of, of, of either um, Byzantine Serbian or, or Byzantine uh, or Byzantine uh, rulers. Most of their wealth came from there. It came from uh, uh, lending, <laughs> lending, uh, selling their services um, as warriors. And also kind of mercenaries, almost. Mercenaries, very much. Okay. Uh, the whole reputation of what we think of today, uh, and it's usually not said in a good way, but, you know, the, the violent Turk or the, you know, the, it, it comes from this idea that uh, when a lot of these people that were two or three generations in just uh, arriving from from uh, uh, outside of the uh, region. So, um, of course, there was about a, a century or so of a lot of, more than a century, actually, of Turkic tribes coming from Central Asia. And we believe that Osman's tribe or his father came in with a second wave of migrations that came from Central Asia. And they were known as being semi-nomadic or nomadic tribes that were fierce fighters um, and brave fighters. And uh, um, so that reputation that, uh, that they cultivated and that reputation they cultivated themselves because that's really how they made a lot of their living and how they gained power and also how they had a vision of how they would expand. Uh, so mercenaries is one way of putting it, but it's absolutely, absolutely uh, would be one of the major ways that they gain power and, and wealth. Uh, but mostly strategic thinking. It's really kind of knowing when to align yourself with whom, where, and, and, and for what purpose is what would tip uh, the scale in their favor as opposed to other Beyliks, other Turkic Beyliks that were uh, in Anatolia at that time. I can go on and on if you wanted to stop. So I basically can. he was a really shrewd politician and yeah. soldier. Is that what we're saying? Very shrewd politician that ruled over, uh, who collected taxes, by the way, paid taxes to the Seljuks still at that time. But he came in at a time when there was, it's like that generation immediately uh, that after the Mongol invasion, essentially, that caused kind of a bit of a vacuum, uh, a power vacuum in Anatolia that allowed a lot of these uh, Turkic tribes uh, or tribal confederations to establish their own autonomy all along kind of either uh, paying taxes at times to the Seljuks, at times whatever is left of the Seljuks that were all themselves paying taxes to the Ilkhanids who were leftover Mongol uh, empire. Uh, or paying uh, taxes uh, or uh, tributes to the to the whatever is left of the Byzantine Empire, so they were in between those two major empires. But there's enough vacuum, there's enough uh, political and power vacuum for them to assert themselves as autonomous uh, emirates, or um, that were uh, expanding often at the expense of each other. So, how much time did it take Osman? to go from being kind of like a semi-vassal to these different um, proto-states or whatever, to, become, to, to, to founding an actual empire. So that, the founding of the actual empire, even though, of course, it's called the Ottoman Empire, it's after him, it could have been named after his father or great uh, or his grandfather, both of which uh, have great TV uh, series that are made in Turkey that are very popular about. Of course, it's all imagination. We know nothing about them. We know very, very little about them. But uh, uh, he did not establish an empire. He is uh, he is credited with the name of the empire. In reality, it's if we start to think of an empire as something that is... Uh, 
or at least an emirate, uh, as a um, as established with a capital, we really have to go to his son, Orhan, where we see like a coin kind of struck in his image. And uh, we have architecture from his period that survives in Bursa, uh, the first Ottoman capital and so on. So it's really his son. Uh, but when we think about the Ottomans as a global empire, uh, that really comes much, much later once they establish their capital in Edirne or Adrianople where they start to threaten beyond the... They start being a regional power and become kind of more of a global power. By the time we hit Istanbul or Constantinople, um, we'll talk about... uh, Please, let's talk about the difference between the names at one point. Please, let's... No, let's do it right now so we clear it up so we resolve this. uh, It's very important that people understand. It's one of my biggest pet peeves is that People think that when you say Istanbul, you're taking a side or you're, 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 you're stamping it as Turkish or, or, or as uh, Muslim, or you're ignoring the constant, the fact that it's a Constantine. Really? That's still a conversation these days? Still a conversation. I have to do this every time with my students. And, uh, uh, if somebody uh, actually uh, says, I'm going on a vacation to Constantinople, that's an actual thing. Yes, no. very much. There are people, let me tell you, when I'm writing articles in which I talk about Istanbul as Istanbul, I always always get some reviewer somewhere, uh, usually from Germany, who is like, uh, <laughs> why am I not surprised? <laughs> he, this is not historically accurate. Uh, he's obviously biased. And, and like, just really? Uh, so let me clear this really, <laughs> which I do almost in the first, uh, I, I play that song, Istanbul, not Constantinople, uh, you know, that um, from the cartoon, and I uh, and then I go. Let's. They are both valid, and they are both Greek. There is nothing Turkish about the word Istanbul. Um, it it really comes from Istanbul, which is means like going to the city spoken in in Greek dialect of that time. Um, it, in many ways, the Ottomans. Uh, in their writing of of the chronicles, they would use mostly Constantinia, which means literally Constantinople. And and had, that's the official name of Istanbul for a very long time. Under the Ottomans, every once in a while, Istanbul would would come up, but it's never as a an ideological uh, dig. Uh, it is just another kind of casual way of saying the city. I I for my students, I give them an example of if you live in Brooklyn and you want to go to Manhattan. You don't say, I'm going to Manhattan. That sounds really weird. That means you're from New Jersey if you have to, you know, you say, I'm going to the city, right? Uh, so it's very, it's it's that similar adoption of the locality, if you will, like the familiarity of, of, of uh, the capital, the city uh, that they adopted. Uh, very late in 19th century, every once in a while, they would call it Islambul, mm-hmm. which uh, is Islambul, uh, but which bol I mean, in Turkish means a lot. So it's, it's like a lot of Islam, but that is not the official name of it. That's someone who's trying to make like, you know, a pun um, uh, on, on, on Istanbul. That's it. Um, so let's just clear that. Uh, they're both Greek. Uh, you can adopt both of them, and 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 nobody who knows anything about the history of the region should should would think that you are uh, a Turkophile or an Islamophile, right? Oh wow! Uh, again, yeah. I didn't even know that this is a debate, but I'm happy that we cleared it up. So during the expansion, was it the Sultanate, or we, or, or is it the Empire already, or how should we call it? That's I love those questions, man. I just know these are really important questions because terminology matters a lot. So uh, it's an it's very much it remains an emirate until uh, the title Sultan, which by the way was only get, uh, the first time you hear the title Sultan used is through the Sult- uh, the first Seljuk uh, Sultan was given that title by the Caliph who was the Abbasid Caliph at the time, who was essentially just a figurehead by then a quasi-religious figurehead, even though he's not a, a religious uh, uh, learned person. But let's just call it kind of a, uh, the Caliph, the Abbasid Caliph g- gives the Seljuk, the head of the Seljuk Empire, and then later the two, sult- the word Sultan. So eventually, which literally just means uh, the ruler or the person with authority. You can tell immediately if it's your person with authority, that means your authority was given by someone, like to say that you're like you're the deputy, if you will, by the, in this case, the caliph. So when the caliphate disappears with the Mongol empire, a lot of these people would, would say, call themselves either emir, bey, or sultan interchangeably. Sultan would, live, would take you up to the level of the Seljuks, which would cause issues with the Seljuks, but eventually the Seljuks disappear as they um, kind of, 
their power disappears and who calls themselves sultan becomes only important when the Ottomans start to have to compete with other major Muslim Ah. empires. Okay, since we're here, the difference between sultan and caliph. Oh, uh, so uh, a caliph, uh, I mean, originally a caliph was literally meant nothing but the successor to the prophet, right? Yeah, so uh, it has for, a more relig- religious connotation as well, right? A caliph is supposed to be uh, the the head of a Muslim empire. And they that word caliph comes because we're, it's, you're supposed to imitate as much as you can the prophet. So you are the literally the successor of the prophet. Now, the only ones that we think of as real successors is the fir- are the first four that were, I think of them as the apostles. Like they were around yeah. when Muhammad was around. After that, it becomes a sultanate or an empire, uh, the Muslim empire. And they, they adopt a lot of the Byzantine uh, notions of, you know, in, inheritance of who, who becomes the you know, the successor of one emperor after another, but they maintain the word caliph as a way of saying that it's a Muslim empire. The caliph is not a religious scholar or a religious holy man, never will be, never is. So um, by the time we get to the Abbasids, though the title caliph, because their power has essentially been stripped, that Seljuks find it more uh, useful for them instead of getting replacing the Abbasids is actually using their clout with the Sunni population to say that, that no, the caliph is still sitting up there um, and he gives us the, the power to rule over you in his name. But in reality, they are the ones that are ruling. Uh, that's why you see maps during the, from the Seljuk period where you see some maps with, which show it as an Abbasid empire, even though it's the Seljuks that are effectively in control. And some maps, uh, particularly later on, would show it as a Seljuk empire without the Abbasids being there because the caliph was, was nothing at that time until the Mongols come and he gets kicked out and we believe his descendants end up in, in Cairo. Uh, so that is that is the difference. So, so the what's interesting with the Ottomans is that they they would not acclaim the title caliph until they conquer uh, the what I call the Arabic speaking majority lands, the Eastern Mediterranean into North Africa and down into the Hejaz into Saudi Arabia. And the reason they do that is that they there is this whole story in which they they are competing with the Mamluks that they take over. In Egypt, right? In Egypt, right. And uh, and the Mamluks are another Sunni empire. They're of Turco-Circassian origin as well. Uh, so there's so much co- commonality, if you will, with the, with the Ottomans. But uh, they have to find a way to justify conquering another Muslim empire by the time we get to that point that the religious, Sunni religious uh, justification as legal justification becomes very important. But this is not, that's all the way out in 1512, 1516. Um, before that, uh, religion is lovely and we can talk about it, but uh, practicality overrides everything. By the time they have Istanbul, the, the establishment of a global empire, a global a new Rome, if you will, that happens to be ruled by Muslims uh, is how they frame it. But then just like the Byzantine had to have a religious uh, establishment that they can, the Ottomans start then to say, no, we're not just an, another empire that happens to be Muslim. We are the Muslim empire. Uh-huh, and that happens only at that point. Yeah. Later yeah, on. So, but um, if we can stop here just a little bit, how did they justify conquering other, especially Muslim empires and peoples? Uh, so that's the thing. I spend a lot of time asking students to understand the difference between a ruler or a state or a dynasty that very much is Muslim and is is not like they're faking their Islam, but uh, does not necessarily do everything because they are Muslim, one, or because of Islam and thus have to justify everything because of, of course. Islam. So the, the distinction is different. It only becomes important when they themselves are writing their own history much later on, centuries literally into the 16th century, or uh, where they start to have to tell the story. So we get, you know, the, the story of the tree coming out of, you know, Osman and him being next to a holy man. All of these religious, uh, their very raison d'etre has to be justified through religious means because their sites are um, put on a much larger empire and they want to compete with uh, other empires that are claiming the mantle to a Catholic, uh, to, you know, they're the of course. You know, the Holy Roman Empire, but also competing then with the Shia, uh, a Persian, Safavid Empire. So you have to have a glorious narrative. 
Exactly. And you can, uh, and at that point, law, uh, an empire that is centralized through a legal system becomes incredibly important because up until then, it was like, do your own thing, collect our taxes, more or less. I'm being oversimplistic here. Yeah, but, of course. But uh, by the time we hit uh, from Mehmet on, from the conquest of uh, Istanbul and, and the generation after him and after him, they, they need to have a legal system in which they can... Uh, like law, and remember legal systems, that means in this case, it would be a mixture of Central Asian traditions, which they still held on to, but also Sharia, uh, what uh, a form of Sharia, an interpretation of Sharia. There's no such thing as a Sharia. You know what I mean? Uh, So, but it has to be, they have to be setting the rules. And so uh, that is the only time. So the the earlier on doing things like conquering other Muslim Baileks, they don't need a justification Uh, for it. They're just like, this is how it is right now. This is the times. We're yes, conquering exactly. each other. We don't need a special justification. Absolutely. This is one warlord against the other warlord. This is the way Absolutely. of the world. And you can later on say that we did this because they were heretics or we did this because they they were not good for the public good uh, or the survival of Islam. But it's always in retrospect, right? In retrospect. Now, That's so fascinating. a major difference happens. It's a kind of a, a, a substantial difference happens after Mehmed II when there is a building up of this establishment. There's also uh, religious schools are being established, universities, if you will, in Istanbul that are supposed to compete with, with established universities that, the, that, uh, uh, in, in Cairo, particularly with Al Azhar, uh, that is under the control of the Memluks. And at one point it becomes, it, it's you or us. There's no us living together in, and we have to establish ourselves as the, uh, Muslim empire, Memluks, they, that is when you get a fatwa. You know what a fatwa, like a religious opinion, yeah. the head of the religious establishment, uh, to say it is kosher to go after other Muslim Sunni empires and we'll tell you why. In the past, they didn't need to tell anything. The, the Sultan would, would just, you know what, it's, a, it's about survival. It's about this is what, what is done. The, here, by the time we hit uh, 1512 and 1516, going after the Safavids or going after the Mamluks has to be religiously justified, even though it's like big loopholes in the way they justify it. The fact that they have to, the Sultan would have to go to Shehul Islam, like the, the head of their, the, the legal kind of pyramid, in Istanbul and work closely with them, which is where the closeness between the state and the religious establishment uh, starts to happen in the Middle East, unfortunately. But working with them to justify actions such as attacking the Mamluks, such as attacking the Safavids, also such as, uh, remember, they're doing things that are not kosher in Islam. For example, going into a, a town that surrendered, you're not, and they, if they're people of the book, that means if they're Christian or Muslim, yeah. sorry, or Jews, you're not supposed to take slaves, including the children, which they've done for many for many centuries by the time we hit Mehmed, which is with the collection of the Dafshirme, the, the Janissary, you know, that I'm sure the, what you started the talk with about them collecting, having a saying that from a specific time we yeah. need this many children to take with us, so we will train them and, you know, to become yeah, yeah. The, uh, the backbone yeah. of the administration. That is still slavery, enslavement, and that was not kosher by Islam. So if they were really following Sunni, you were, you're literally not allowed to do that. So I thought that kind of slavery, I may have it all wrong here, please correct me, but that it was a common practice in the Ottoman Empire. Um, when you conquered other peoples, you took slaves if they were not Muslim. So slavery was very much practiced, uh, yeah. and it continued, fortunately, to be practiced in different ways. Very, I, our North American audience will think of uh, slavery in the transatlantic sense. Uh, it is very different kinds of slavery. That, slavery, it's different, right? Exactly. So there's different kinds. There's the you know the the, the collection yeah. of these kids that they bring them and then they educate them and they become viziers in some cases. In some cases, they become accountants. They're converted. They themselves will own slaves. So it's a whole other uh, they're only slaves to one person by the way and that is the sultan and it's important to keep so that it's in like state-owned slaves state-owned slaves sultan-owned slaves so the sultan has the right the death and and life right over you but otherwise your life is is actually you're living an elite established part of the, the the upper layer in which you don't pay taxes all of that stuff 
That doesn't mean it's not enslavement. It's very much enslavement. So uh, uh, slavery, uh, and there are other kinds of slavery. There is chattel slavery. There is sub-Saharan slavery that comes from, like there's different kinds that was practiced in the Ottoman Empire, in some cases all the way until the end of the Ottoman Empire, which mm-hmm. is which I talk about, I mean, illegally, but still. And uh, um, all the way till till the very end, uh, which is part of what I talk about in in this this more recent book, which was shocking to me, but very important to talk about. I thought the reason I'm saying all this is is uh, there. But having said that, there are legal and illegal ways of of obtaining slaves according to to reli- if you are following strict Sharia, Sharia particularly Sunni uh, jurisprudence, right? So um, if you conquer a place. And they did not resist, which means you did not fight with them. You have no right to take uh, to pillage and take slaves and whatever. They are Christian. You're there. Dimmi. Dimmi means the protected, right? So you're supposed to protect them because now they are part of the state. And in in exchange for that protection, they pay a head tax. Of course, they're second class citizens. They have to pay a head tax to be protected. I, I mean, look, I mean, I'm not. This is not some you know utopic existence. Uh, but uh, so a lot of these villages that they took those kids from, they did not resist. Most of these villages do not have uh, um, a military. The people that resist are the people in one specific spot. Usually it's owned by a feudal lord or something of like course. this. Yeah. Uh, so most of these people that were, they were there, you just go into a new village where now this is these are the taxes. In most cases, they make the taxes more favorable than what they had before. Because in the expansion period, you do not want rebellion. You don't have uh, enough boots on the crown to maintain people by force. So what you do uh, is adopt what the Muslims did long time ago when they were expanding, which is you make things as favorable as possible for the local population so you don't have to worry about them rebelling when you're moving, still expanding, moving forward with your army. So except when it comes to so it's a big exception, this taking a few you usually have a specific number that you take and there's a lot of debate that after a, about a hundred years of this practice, which was horrendous, but unless you think about the relationship between child, children and parents as very different in, in the early modern period than it is for us. Uh, what I mean by this is that uh, do you think of your children as workers for you? Of course, you take care of them. Or do you think of them as this notion of childhood, which is a very 19th century, and the notion of, of adulthood and, and the relationship in a nuclear family? Of course, didn't exist. What I mean by that is that we don't know at one point, do people actually want to give their children up so children will have a much better um, a life? And then send money back, build churches where they came from, and so on, if they do well, and, and how much of it was it, it was by force. It is enslavement. Let me just make this very clear. I'm not saying this as a... I'm trying to complicate uh, our modern notion of, 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 of things that we take for granted to just make sure that people understand that it is a lot more complex in the way it operated. Of course, we can we can definitely have moral judgment over it now, uh, but it was a lot more complex in the way it operated. Um, in the sense that enslavement, both kosher—I keep saying kosher—I I, uh, I mean, um, both religiously, uh, legally justified, and those that are not legally justified was very much practiced. And and then when the legal system was well established, there's challenges to that. As a slave, could you uh, eventually become free? Of course, uh, as a slave, depending on what kind of slave you are, you can be manumitted. That, but that's usually like the lower ranked slaves. What I mean by this is that people that work in fields, people that work mostly in households, uh, you're supposed they are supposed to be manumitted at one point. Now, the defshirme is a whole other system. It's we call it. It's um, it, it's essentially uh, we take you in, we convert you. Okay, let's talk about it right now because that's what my, my question anyway. Because it's probably the juiciest source of Ottoman lore in the Balkans are the Janissaries. Yes or as yes. we call them Yanichari back home we were told that these young kids were mostly from the Balkans but probably not were taken at a young age raised as Muslim and then turned into these elite infantry soldiers in our stories they were always soldiers not administrators yes. uh, and these fantastic stories usually convey a mix of fear you know in a modern sense of kids being taken from their parents but also pride because they became somebody in the empire right the classic arc is then of course some Serbian janissary who would then become the Grand Vizier, you know? Yes. What was the reality, though? 
that is not too far off. And what I mean by this is that, but it, they, you collect like thousands of children. How many of them will become viziers? Let's just, you know. So yes, absolutely. Uh, for a period, most of the viziers were were uh, initially uh, like from, let's say, Constantinople on, like from the conquest of uh, of Constantinople on. Uh, the the viziers are majority Muslim uh, Christian converts, uh, but they're uh, as initially they're as adults. What I mean by this is that they're Byzantine, uh, ex-Byzantine or ex-Serbian lords that are brought in. They convert. Usually you can tell from their name because they would have to, like, their first name becomes Mehmet, but their last name would be Angelovich, you know, like, so it's uh, it's not, uh, you know. And they don't lose their ties, of course, to where they came from. In fact, their ties are strengthened. That is part of the reason they, they would bring them into the central administration. Uh, later on, a lot of these people that would rise through uh, the ranks uh, would be children, but that would take time. So they would come in as, what does that mean? 13, I mean, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, that kind of thing and they and then you uh, try and figure out they are converted and then you they you teach them you put them through the education system of the court so you, they learn uh, Turkish obviously Persian uh, because that is the language of uh, it's uh, for a while it was the language of administration but then it becomes uh, uh, the language of literature and poetry. So if you're a, a Renaissance man, uh, no pun intended, you would n- you would have to have Persian and um, Arabic for legal uh, if you're going to go into into law, right? And then you would split the very few that end up being Janissaries, Yenicheri. Uh, uh, so Janissaries in English, Yenicheri is the right word to hear, which means the new army or the. So they are the ones that are the elite trained. And they are the ones that you only send in at the end. Uh, still, the, there was no such thing as a standing army for a long time. Mm-hmm. When there were standing armies, strained armies, that becomes in. Uh, that's when the Ottomans start to to lose their military power. Because for them, they would call on some of their. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, a lot of their uh, armies would have different, uh, they would send them to different kind of villages where they would rule over, not rule, they would use the uh, uh, resources from the village. And then they're supposed to be called on by, by the central government when we're going into, into battle. And they'd bring in men with pitchforks, mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you, you know, so they're just fodder that you would actually use as fighters. Janissaries are trained elite people you bring in at the end uh, to, to finish things off. But the Janissaries, out of all of the Devshirmen, which is the system of collecting, that's what they call them, like uh, the harvesting, uh, you, uh, only if you become Janissaries, the rest uh, populate the administration. So they are the accountants and the lawyers and um, and the religious figures and people that work in the court, people that are very close to the sultan. They work, they, they, some of them uh, work in his internal chamber. So they wash him and bathe him and all. So, and, and you know, all this, uh, you basically, somebody is in charge of uh, them as they grow up and you figure out what is their strength. Are they more like physical? Is it mental? Is it something else? So they get divided up. But that means a lot of the rank and file are actually ex, mostly Balkan. So that is absolutely true. Uh, mostly Balkan, you usually go, I mean, Serbian, uh, Serbia has a disproportionate number from them, but Montenegro also has a, a, a Montenegro, because they had this image that Montenegrins are big and broad and sturdy. They're mountain men. Yeah, we you know? still have that image in the Balkans, to be honest. Right, right, right. So there is a, a so that, that is common. Now, the, the whole thing with Dafshirme really ends towards the end of the 17th century. By the beginning of the 18th century, it's gone. Uh, it's, it cannot be justified. And also remember, there's no conquest happening after that, where the borders are established. So what are you going to go? Go to your Ottoman villages that happen to be in it and, and collect kids. So that whole system falls apart. Also, the system is so strict that your, the, the Janissaries are, do not, they can get married, but they're not, the, their privilege does not go to their kids. Uh-huh, uh huh. Okay. Right, so, so it's, it's not just, like a, a a feudal lord who just pass or no, no, nothing like that okay. at all. They also get paid in salary, so whether so like they're professionals, work, they're professionals. Uh, they uh, but later on, all of that falls apart for many reasons. Economic is one of them. Also, the devaluation of the currency. They're paid in coin that gets devaluated when the silver comes from the new world. There's so many complex that 
that whole eliteness of the Genesis that lasted for about 200 years really deteriorates very quickly. And then it's, but they have established themselves now. They've changed the rules for themselves. There's so many of them that, uh, that they become kind of enemy of the state, if you will. Uh, They're, they're competing with the Sultan's authority. Imagine like it's Mm -hmm. a whole other thing. And it takes about a hundred years to get rid of them completely. Finally, with this like red wedding event in which, you know, they, uh, they get rid of the reference. Uh, yeah, uh, they get rid of uh, uh, a whole bunch of them until, which only happens really in 1820. So, another institution that has always preoccupied the imagination of the Westerners, sometimes a little bit too much, especially the Orientalists in the 19th century, was the Ottoman Imperial Harem. Um, oh. But actually, far from the cliched conception of the Harem just being like a living space for sultans' wives and concubines, harems could wield quite a lot of political power, right, at times? Very much. No, very much. It's one of my favorite uh, things to talk about, even though I don't specialize in it. Um, it is, it, it's, it's something that comes up a lot. And of course, the word harem has these, you know, people get weird images in their head. Um, <laughs> Uh, or not weird, depending on how you're into it, whatever. <laughs> but uh, let me break it down as much as I can. Please. And I rely heavily on Leslie Pierce's work, um, who did a great job. There are others, there are new uh, work that's being done, but really she she kind of like nipped at like uh, this sexual fantasy in, in Bud by talking about uh, the, uh, the harem as an institution. And it's an institution that has hierarchies, it has salaries, and uh, uh, and a lot of power, a fascinating amount of power from within the walls. So yes, their mobility is actually quite, it's restricted, but their their interaction with powerful pashas and viziers and, and of course the sultan uh, and their access to it allows them a lot more power than we imagined. And she kind of breaks it down in very interesting ways. So the harem, yes, it, there's a lot of concubines, um, enslaved people that come from uh, which is where the word white slavery if you've i mean slav <laughs> it comes from so they a lot of them are brought in from uh, they're bought uh, from either crimea the the, the cause yeah. of a lot of has always been a very interesting place a lot of the tatar that left over from tamerlane uh, live there but they also were aligned allied with the ottoman empire mm-hmm. and in many ways paid taxes a lot of it is done uh, with slaves so they supplied uh, the top of the, the uh, most of the households uh, that had concubines with the best because they would they would raid neighboring areas in what is today Ukraine and what is as well as Russia on the other side all the way into Poland. So a lot of these uh, women would would be originally from you know are they Ukrainian and Polish and whatever, and later on from Circassia. So they're Circassian. So. Every uh, and Circassian uh, slavery continues all the way into the 20th century. Whoa! Yes. Um, so, what does that mean? They they are brought in. In 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 the case of the the palace, uh, there's many of them. I don't know, uh, uh, but they are then. They have to be divided into. Of course, there are some that sleep with the sultan. Uh, their their job is to produce an heir. Yeah. And but there is the rest of them do everything else, right? Uh, within this system, in which the head of this institution is the sultan's mother, who then dictates everything below her. What, what uh, was she called? She was called Sultan something, right? Yeah, Valid Sultan. Sultan. Yeah. But what is interesting, what it's important to remember is that by definition, the mother of the sultan was herself a slave. Okay. Right? Why? Because you uh, uh, beyond the first couple of generations of Ottomans when it was a, a Balix, what you start to do is is that uh, you only marry for political. Uh, but the Sultan really does not. Uh, you do not have sex with the person you're married. <laughs> you have sex with the concubines that are there to produce heirs. Once they produce an heir, a male heir specifically. And if the male heir is viable, which means he's not disabled in one way or another, you usually go into the, you send them along with the male heir to a province to, to rule over a province. In reality, the women are doing the ruling from the back, uh, from the background, but it's in the name of their 12 year old salt, um, uh, kid. Your, your job is to make sure that your kid, as opposed to all of the other kids of all of the other concubines, makes it to, becomes the sultan. 
uh, and because then you become the valid sultan, you become the queen mother, and then you rule all, uh, over a lot uh, of the internal uh, dynamics within the uh, the palace. So what I'm trying to say is that it's very much an economic political system within this that confines and the sultan. And by the way, who gets to choose who uh, it's usually about genetics. Uh, they, uh, so you want to, uh, you want to try and find an, um, a concubine who is beautiful and healthy. So we'll have healthy, beautiful heirs. What beauty is now gets into uh, colorism, right? Uh, which is, uh, we remember uh, the Ottomans come from Central Asia. They, what already and, then? No, no. Uh, uh, so Ottomans come from Central Asia, right? Like that's no, no, their uh, answer. When you mentioned colorism, oh, already then. What do I mean by colorism? I mean uh, it has. She has to be the reason that they, they, they all come from from Slavic uh, lands. From Slavic lands is because that is the notion of beauty that there has to be white, like snow white, and uh, the, so the sultans end up having blue eyes, and you know, all the way till the end, right? Yeah, um, so they already had this notion of beauty back then. Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. This is not a modern. No, thing. no. I, uh, it's a. It's com- It's a really controversial thing. Somebody's gonna write me an email. Uh, <laughs> I but, apologize for that. Uh, an email is fine. Uh, what's interesting is that yes, absolutely. The woman that the Sultan uh, would would uh, produce an heir from, from right from the beginning, uh, end up having to be uh, uh, white. Uh, they remember they are mixing into first the Byzantine royal court, but later on into the wider European notion of what royalty looks like. So they are very much part of a European orbit of of royalty. Uh, on a cultural level. But why uh, would they, they care what the Europeans of conceptions of beauty are? No, absolutely. So the Ottomans, that's a great question because I, uh, by what I just said, people misinterpret this as me saying that they thought that Europe is better than them and they're trying to imitate it. Absolutely not. They were part of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. They are part of the system and uh, they are part of it all the way till the end. So even when when the Ottoman Empire is, you know, it's considered like whatever the sick man of Europe and all of that. And people think of it as the Ottomans are trying to imitate. The Ottomans have always been part of it. So the Europeans sometimes would uh, imitate the fashions uh, out mm-hmm. of... Uh, Coming out of the court in the, in, the, in the 17th and 18th century, out of the Ottoman court in the 17th and 18th century. And the Ottomans would adopt it, but this idea that we are all part of a very specific notion of what it means to be an imperial upper class across the continent. Um, and they interact at that level. But this idea that then our offsprings have to be look a specific way, and that is what beauty, more importantly, that is what Ottoman dynasty should look like, is very specific. An Ottoman dynasty is is supposed to be this. Uh, they're they're essentially these what uh, what the people in the Arab world uh, or in the Arabic speaking world uh, would call room or Roman uh, at that time, as opposed to room, which means Greek Orthodox. So they have this. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, did the Ottomans have a concept of race? I mean, you cannot talk about race without talking about racism. Yeah. Uh, because they're tied in a way that it, it race only matters if there's racism. Um, the construction of race is about the otherness. Uh, there is otherness in in the Ottoman Empire. It might be it operated very differently than it did in in Western mm-hmm. Europe because uh, its functionality of uh, particularly during the colonial period worked very differently for the Ottomans. They were not, the Ottomans, even though they they uh, they were trying to join. Uh, kind of a modern colonial system in Africa, which is what I argue in the in in, in my first book, uh, it it didn't manifest. So the notion of otherness that comes with with blackness or whatever only really seeps into the Ottoman Empire very 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 late. Uh, when I say late, uh, and it operates in ways that are familiar to a Western audience. Yeah. So late nineteenth, early twentieth century, when uh, otherness uh, comes with with trying to reassess who. Uh, the pureness of us, uh, whatever it is, it's pureness of Turk, pureness of Arab, pureness of Greek, pureness of Armenian. Uh, and in many ways, it's constructed against some other. In Turk, it's Arab or black. Uh, uh, Armenian, it is Turk. You know what I mean? There's this... Uh, but that happens along very late in the time when uh, the very notion of, of empire is, is falling apart. When I was reading, it seemed like... T- Compared to medieval Europe, the Ottoman Empire was a very tolerant place. 
Oh, it, it's uh, compared to medieval Europe, 100%. And that's not a high... Uh, you know, <laughs> okay, like, probably compared to medieval Europe, everybody else looked very tolerant. But I'm worried about two things I, when I start talking about the, uh, Ottoman tolerance. The word tolerance indicates power. So, and, and I really want this to be very clear. So if you are tolerant of someone, that means you are tolerating... Absolutely, you hold the power. So absolutely, 100%, they were tolerant. But who is an Ottoman is complicated. So uh, there is, of course, the ruling very thin dynasty on top and people that were part of the, the ruling establishment, and they were mixed. So that with outside of the dynasty, the people that were part of that establishment, let's go into the 19th century because we're coming. So uh, they're very mixed. So you will have definitely you will have Albanians and Armenians and, 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 and Bulgarians and Arabs and all of that that are part of. So who identifies as Ottoman, who is not part of the Ottoman dynasty changes. But so it is mixed on 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 top. Now, uh, when we're taught, if you're thinking about tolerance in terms of towards religion, different religious groups, then it gets complicated. So what I mean by this is, uh, yes, the state organized itself based on uh, dividing up the population from its own perspective uh, uh, into specific what they called millets or let's call them Nations usually, uh, traditionally, when they got Istanbul, there was four defined, I mean, three defined millets, and they're uh, a millet uh, meaning, meaning Greek Orthodox, um, Jewish, and Armenian. They were the three that were that were considered the Ottoman other. So whatever, they were very mm-hmm. much part of the system, but they were Christians, right, that have yeah. their own autonomy, but also have to pay jizya, a head tax, yeah. right? And there's rules that they have to follow that only are, are, are applied when the state itself is, is, is having some issue internally to, to show its power over the minorities, right? So that is tolerance, 100%. And then within those communities, they flourished. So if you, uh, the flourishing of communities, particularly of the Jewish community and the Greek Orthodox community, 100% happened. Uh, now, uh, I don't want... Uh, but that is how society operated, right? Uh, we, dis- uh, the state uh, is uh, divides these people into those people. But on top of all of them are the people that need no definition, the Sunni Muslims. The universal kind of. The universal compared to other empires, honestly, all the way till the end. And I would argue that very, uh, that not even just Midi, compared to the British Empire, compared to the French Empire and how they treated other places, it's 100% night and day. Uh, that, does that mean that discrimination did not happen? Does that mean that the difference was not, was not highlighted? Of course not. Does that mean that horrible things did not happen towards the end of the empire? I am in no way. Like, so horrible things in which those same millets that were us, so a millet that what people mistake is that they think a millet means that it's a non-Ottoman. It's the it is actually a specific kind of Ottoman. The problem is that when you have them designated a specific kind of Ottoman, when notions of of, of nationalism and racism comes in, you can then target a specific millet. Ah, I see, I see. But would they have like their own schooling system and their own yep. like judicial judicial system? Oh my god. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm telling you like the one-on-one version, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Uh, remember the state, uh, this is supposed to have uh, kind of originated in the big cities near Istanbul, first in Istanbul, where that was defined. And you have someone on the head of each that this. So if I'm the sultan, I can choose, uh, of course, in, you know, who would be the head of a specific community. Usually it's the Greek Orthodox uh, uh, patriarch in uh, for the room that are called the Greek Orthodox, uh, the, called room in, in Osmanlıca or the Jews or whatever. Now, when you go beyond the, the big cities where there's uh, Ottoman presence and Ottoman administration, things become a lot more localized like and, and not necessarily as uniform. But yes, theoretically, the way I teach it when we're doing one-on-one is we say, yes, they have their own, uh, their autonomous schooling system. So they learn their own language. They uh, Their religion is taught. And as far as religious legal or uh, system is established, they can go to it. But the whole population has always the, the potential Sorry, the the option of going to the state legal system, which is Hanafi Sunni. Okay. So if you if I if we're married and we cannot get married, we cannot um, get divorced uh, because we're both I don't know Catholic. I can go to then to the and say he's according to Islamic law, he's not paying my 
he is not keeping up my lifestyle the way I would like. <laughs> this is all for personal status issues, right? So things that are supposed to be about crimes against God or uh, crimes against the state are always tried by the state. So what do I mean by this? Tax issues, <laughs> you're not give, that's the state. But also things like murder, uh, do you understand what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. things like divorce, inheritance, schooling, marriage, that kind of, that is each community has its own control over it. Okay. I'm sorry, we're jumping a little bit all over the place. Um, during the so-called age of, golden age of Suleiman the Magnificent, right? We have this yeah. immense flourishing of science and the arts. And it seems that yes. the wealth from, wealth from all over the world is just pouring into the empire. I picture yes. Istanbul during that time as one of the richest and, I don't know, is it too much to say most progressive places? On Very Earth? much. But what was life like for a commoner? So uh, what do you mean by in Istanbul? You yeah, mean, or? yeah, yeah, at that time. If we step down from the court and, you know, the janissaries and all these like um, institutions and stuff like what was just, do we have any insight into what was life like for, I don't know, a blacksmith or um, a, a, a tradesman? That's very interesting. Uh, we have very little, but we have some. It is surprisingly mobile mm -hmm. and surprisingly multicultural. Uh, I, I use that term advisedly. So what I mean by this is that we have records basically from courts. This is where we get to the to the people because everybody used the courts, the court system. And if it's something about taxation or land, selling a land or something, you will show up in the official court system as opposed to the religious. Makes sense. So from that, we can tell that a lot of the people were very mobile. So they would talk about themselves, even though it's very hard to get around with no technology. There is a sense of, of, of we're ruling over a big piece of land, a big part of earth at that point all the way from you know hungary to yemen and and people uh have that sensibility about them particularly from from the center so they would talk about uh, so they would talk about a case that in which somebody from albania uh, had a, a beef with someone in ankara or something so it's actually they interacted in ways that we it's hard for us to imagine now quite cosmopolitan the, no cosmopolitan particularly in the big cities they also spoke language they spoke several languages because they and they didn't learn them in school uh, literacy rate was very high mm. uh, i mean like 99 right so people do not know what language they're speaking but they would be speak they would be written down into the court where the dude would start with greek and end with turkish or they would be mixed in a way that is in in their locality so if you're living in a neighborhood in which your uh, uh, your gardener is is uh, uh, from montenegro but your uh, nanny is from somewhere else you grow up with that mixture of languages that was actually quite common but it's very local so people had they could communicate in ways that are very different than to our understanding of who which community does what ottoman turkish uh, it was only uh, um, kind of a written language, if you will, and proper Turkish was only spoken at the very, very high level uh, of society. And it's mostly for administrative reasons or with the royalty. Uh, Anatolian Turkish was very different than than uh, what what we think of as Ottoman Turkish. And they tried after after the end of the empire to revive the Anatolian Turkish. Of course, uh, languages develop very organically and to cleanse them is really to to mess with them completely, which is unfortunately what they did. Uh, so it's a very mixed society, you know, mixed, you know, the day to day is, you know, there is uh, Greeks and, and there are Turks and Armenians, but also Persians and, and Venetians and French people that live there because it is the hub. Uh, it's like the it's the center of the world. It's like going to not New York anymore. New York is very boring now. I don't know. Uh, give me a good city. Give me a good city. Berlin, of course, because I'm here. Berlin, of course, yeah. of course, where there's a lot of activity that's happening, and also it is it has the reputation beyond the borders of this of the empire. Yeah as where culture happened, as where if you want to learn new things, you go to. So read that. So when they're talking about the golden age, yes, the court is fabulous and taffeta everywhere and there's diamonds and stuff that is great. But uh, the places like Istanbul by then, I remember uh, Mehmet uh, II, when he conquered Istanbul, Istanbul was like a shadow of its former self, yeah. right? He had to repopulate it, had, uh, you know, what he called uh, kind of uh, population reengineering, where he brought people uh, with incentive and by force uh, to 
engineer a specific kind of uh, environment that has both Greeks and Armenians and Jews and as well as Turkic, but that have very specific skills. And most importantly, international connections. So it will become a hub of an international network. It is an established global capital that uh, that's why we think so the golden age is just uh, uh, it's like an, a capital that was built as a global capital becomes a global capital and and it's manifests all the way down to the layers now outside of the capital it's a very different story very very different of course story. but i did ask you about istanbul to be fair yeah. i mean if i have a choice a hundred times what would i choose a london in the 15th century or istanbul in the 15th century i'm gonna go istanbul a hundred times probably out of the hundred honestly i i would choose istanbul I would choose Istanbul, period. But nice. I would, I'm a bit uh, uh, obsessed with Istanbul. But honestly, it's uh, it, even in the worst of times, um, we're talking, you know, the turmoil of the 18th century, whatever, it remains in different ways, kind of that it's, it's connecting not just uh, Europe with the East, it is, it's connecting the South with the North. And that to me is, 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 is fascinating. So it's a very, it's a, I'm giving you a golden age, a golden uh, image. I, let me just put in the caveat that within that society, of course, for this to operate, just like any imperial capital, uh, you're collecting a lot of taxes from a lot of people and a lot of it is free labor. Uh, just like when you go to London, I tell my students, like, London is beautiful. Guess where the money comes oh, from? Of course. <laughs> you know, like, uh, colonies. Cap- Hashtag colonies. Exactly. Or, or you know, an empire uh, where you your first thing is to make sure that the capital is well fed and, and, and organized is where that is the goal of the economy at a certain extent. Of course, we'll produce a golden place. How do people feel about it, whether it's in the Balkans or in Anatolia or somewhere else is a very, very different. Yeah, I recently visited Lisbon for the first time uh, and it was beautiful. But there were little reminders of where this wealth came from on every corner. Of course, unfortunately, when you're a historian, particularly historian of empire, it's very hard to just like be like, "Eh, I went to Prague the other day. I was like, oh, Jesus. Like, all I can see is is pillaging, which is terrible. Like, you know, it just ruins everything. (laughs) I believe that. Um, We're rushing a little bit. Uh, I know you don't have so much time left. Just two more questions. Jumping centuries again, but what were some of the major reasons for the eventual decline of the Ottoman Empire? I know it's a huge question, and I'm sorry to do this to you. No, no, it is. uh, um, I just, uh, I don't want to be an annoying guy, but I want to, I want to try and get rid of the word decline because decline assumes a specific, like it slowly went away and I'm just use it for the Roman Empire or whatever. But the reason I'm saying this is because it is, uh, there was no one one way down uh, moment. Like there was no like pivot that way. we. Uh I recently had a a historian of ancient Rome on the podcast and, and she said, there was no fall of the Roman Empire. It was a gradual decline. But maybe even this word is not useful in this context anymore. No, not in this context. And I understand why they do it in the Roman Empire. We we know a lot more about how things... I mean, just because the different times. We know a lot more about what was happening with the Ottomans than we do with the of Romans. Course. So it's here to draw like a nice uh, kind of a story arc in which there's like the climax. and when, For the Ottoman Empire... Um, it is much more difficult to do that. In fact, it's not useful at all. And part of the reason it's not useful at all is because you start to do nothing after Suleiman the Magnificent, but look for reasons for decline as a research question. And of course, if you look for it, you will find it. But then when in re- the reality is that there were good times and there were bad times and then there were good times and there were bad times. And it depends on what you define as good and bad, right? Expansion stops. But it, the provinces flourish, uh, you know. So is expansion the the measure for for uh, whether the it's in the ascend or descend? Uh, there are they're losing territories, but they're also reforming in very it's really fascinating ways, which is the period I work on. So nineteenth century is fascinating. There's good and bad, but it is like any other um, political entity. Uh, it's moving in in a direction that is very familiar, which is. Uh, it becomes more of a nation empire uh, that is that is thinking of its subjects in a very new way. Uh, so the subjects become citizen subjects. Uh, so all of these things we would miss if we're thinking of it as let's look for the uh, for all of the signs that actually fell apart. So by the time that we hit World War One, the empire is in debt. 
they they have been in debt for a long time. Uh, I mean, they're they're bankrupt. Uh, so uh, by the, uh, really the late nineteenth century, we're talking the eighteen seventies. So the uh, the British and the French, but also the Austrians and sometimes others would come in and they would try to service the debt of their own citizens bef- from the budget of the empire before it uh, goes to the empire. So that causes an erosion of sovereignty within. If you can't control your own budget within the empire, that is a cr- erosion of sovereignty. There's also uh, a concerted effort from European powers to redefine the Ottoman Empire as a non-civilized empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a legal term in, the, in which the sovereignty uh, of this European empire, it's part of the concert of Europe, is then questioned as being not uh, legally applicable uh, to it. So they start to take little chunks of land out of it, and there's legal justifications for it, even though it is supposed to be protected by law, by international law. Uh, so there's external pressures that are happening. But also internally, the things that are happening in a multinational empire, which it which it is, if we think of Millet as a nation, uh, a lot of uh, external pressures and internal pressures about uh, that that want different forms of political representation, whether it is autonomy, whether it is complete separation, starts to come in, and that slowly kind of carves out some of the sovereignty of the of the dynasty all of this assuming an, an empire is a dynasty and it's it's it becomes more complicated in the 19th century an empire is an it's like a, it's like um it becomes an empire and a state right it's um it's beyond its dynasty by the time we hit World War One, surprisingly, it is still very viable in the same way that the Russian Empire was viable and the same way that the Habsburg Empire was viable which means there's a lot of you can easily talk about its weakness militarily, its weakness economically, but as a as a there was no there was no understanding of it disappearing uh, within four years. But World War One did it, and uh, the uh, the ultimate outcome was not predetermined, as we would like to think, of the of the empire falling and then being kind of carved up into so nations. So similarly, states. like the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Russian uh, Tsarist Russia also didn't anticipate that it's going to disappear in the course of one war. Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, again, I hate to go back to the book because it's my... Please know, do. It is. Uh, so I, I follow 40 years of uh, imperial family, uh, that was not Turkish. Arab uh, Ottoman, right? I call them Arab Ottoman, which is uh, it's like a, which means they're from an Arab or Arabic speaking part of the uh, empire. But they're definitely they're distinctly not non-Turk. They're not Turkish, and uh, uh, that they go through that period of being part of an imperial nation, if you will. Of course, they're elites. So of course, they can claim all of it, good, bad, and ugly, and and try to. Uh, they think of imperialism as a strength rather than. Um, oppression but they were part of this and then it's within i would say five or even seven years where things change very very quickly and 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 uh, their notion of who they are and what they belong to falls apart even though they're right at the center so it's a the it we might want to think of it in retrospect like as a decline of three centuries it really the way it's experienced is a quick and and um traumatic, very traumatic uh, for a lot of people. Uh, and that generation that went through that transition from being part of a, an empire, whether they are in Beirut or in, in Istanbul, is 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 really traumatic and then they're disconnected from there's a uh, for the nation state that was created uh, afterwards there was a concerted effort to disconnect people from their history again of imperialism so it's not really sounds funny. familiar yeah yeah and that I really think is is um it's psychologically, generationally, like it's just you have you have no control over your history or knowledge of your history, and it's the generation that lived it through that transition is a is a traumatized generation, and then the generations that came afterwards really have they're disconnected from what uh, again the past their past whether they like it or not, uh, um, which causes a lot of the problems I think that we, that many of the generations in the Arab world and, and in Turkey. Uh, because uh, uh, experience um, and this disconnection from people around you, suddenly people that were part of the same unit become the other. Um, it, it's detrimental to the whole to the whole region, and it's it's mm-hmm. fundamental to the way we understand some of the conflicts that are happening there. But we don't understand it because we don't study the the, the history and the period of transition. 
Okay, the time is here to conclude, sadly, because this was an absolutely awesome conversation. Um, but the title of this podcast is You Are Trash, which means I have to ask you something a bit more trashy at the end, of course. These days in the Balkans, we've been conquered again, but this time with Turkish soap operas, especially about the Ottomans. Uh, yes. Like, people are literally fainting in shopping centers with one of these actors appear there. Uh, it's impossible to ignore, you know, they have whole tours of the Balkans and all that stuff. Do you maybe have a favorite one just as a guilty pleasure? Oh, no, I, uh, I honestly, I've tried. So uh, <laughs> I've tried. It... Okay, I think that's the answer already. No, no, I mean, Hiram Sultan. I mean, uh, we were, I sound like Hiram Sultan. I speak Turkish because people made fun of me. I, I, I sound like a Turk who's, who grew up in Germany, which, uh, you know, just like Hiram Sultan is or the actress is. So we used to, when it that first came out, it was like a big deal and we would like get together. It was on a Wednesday. It would, the, with the commercials, it would go on the whole night. It was a lot of fun. And um, which one are you talking about? The very, very first one, Muhtasham uh, Yuzil. Uh, the English uh, title. You don't know the English title. In the shadow. Is it yeah, the Magnificent no. Century? Is that the one? Yeah. 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 And uh, so that was the first one. And I thought, and I still use clips from that, uh, from that show in my, uh, um, in my class, not as a, as a way of talking about our imagination of, uh, or our perception of, of the past and how it's used uh, today in Turkey. Uh, it becomes a lot more, uh, politicized. I don't know. I mean, it's all propaganda, of course. Everything is, but uh, uh, the the ones that came after that were just so explicitly for a historian are just so explicitly about today rather than what happened then. It becomes very difficult to watch, and it really is difficult to see my mother like fawning over them and taking them as 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 history because you just stop at one point. You just like all right, fine, you know. Um, so I I find it hard to watch. You know, I I recently had. A Viking historian on the podcast, and I asked him about the TV show Vikings, and he had a very similar reaction that you're having to the, the to these Ottoman soap operas. So maybe yeah, the authors should become a little bit more creative. Um, Professor Minavi, where can people find your book, Losing Istanbul? Oh, thank you. That's uh, for that. So they can find it uh, on Amazon or, or through Stanford or any anywhere that uh, English uh, books are sold. Uh, Amazon is big in Germany, and uh, but in in Turkey you, there are other uh, similar. Like you know, you can get it through Getir if uh, if you want. So it's really available everywhere. It's uh, at least in in Europe and, and North America. Now, for when we go into the Arab world, it becomes a little more complicated just because of the access to so. I am working very hard on getting it translated into Arabic. It took me way too long to translate the first book into Arabic, and it's coming out in December. Uh, so this one, I want to have it translated into Arabic and available through Arabic, uh, in, in particularly in North Africa and um, and the rest of the Arab world soon. Uh, Turkish translation, I I will have to pause on for now because the first one got translated into Turkish and all hell broke loose. So. Can people follow you on social media, websites, Twitter, uh, Instagram? Um, Mustafa Minawi at Twitter. Please follow me on Twitter. Do not request uh, Facebook French. If I don't know you, I will... Uh, would not accept you on Facebook, uh, which has been happening a lot recently. And I'm like, just go on Twitter. Uh, so it's Mustafa Minawi, uh, at Mustafa Minawi, M-O-S-T-A-F-A-M-I-N-A-W-I. Um, uh, that's the best place to actually follow me because that's where I put most of the stuff related to work and news and analysis about what's happening uh, in 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 the region, Turkey and Lebanon and Syria. And so Professor Minawi, thanks again. This was absolutely amazing. I hope we can do this in the future again. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. This was a lot of fun.